Here our lesson of the day from 1 Corinthians. I will start at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, and read through the beginning of verse 8 in chapter 13. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your love to us shown in Christ Jesus and ask that you would fill our hearts to overflowing with your love. May your word go forth with purpose and power today to transform us and to extend your kingdom that your truth might be advanced. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is a very familiar passage uh, used often at weddings and on other special occasions. It is one of the most beautiful and one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Uh, It is really exquisite poetry. Uh, Many think it was perhaps an early Christian hymn, a love song, a song about love, a song about Christian love. But we need to remember its context. This hymn to love, this love song, is found in 1 Corinthians, which means it is found in a letter that is full of Correction. Paul has to correct the Corinthians in a number of areas. Most of this letter, 16 chapters long, is really a disciplinary letter for the church. It's a disciplinary letter for a church that is in disarray. And this letter is part of that discipline. It is part of that correction. It is a beautiful passage, but it's designed to expose our ugliness. It is beautiful, but it is also brutal. Let me show you what I mean. This passage is a description of love. We know we are supposed to love. We are supposed to be loving. So does this passage describe us? Does this passage describe you? Does this passage describe me? Well, read it that way and see. Replace love here with yourself and see what happens. Replace love with I and read it. See if it rings true. I'll pick up in verse 4 and do it for myself. I suffer long and am kind. I do not envy, I do not parade myself, I am not prideful or puffed up, I do not behave rudely, I do not seek my own, I am not provoked, I do not keep a record of wrongs, I do not rejoice in iniquity, but I rejoice in truth, I bear all things, I believe all things, I hope all things, I endure all things, I never fail. Now that's just kind of a joke when you read it that way. You realize it's it's not about me, it's pretty sure it's not about you either. It just doesn't, we we know we don't live up to this. None of us loves others in this way all the time. We're not as patient or as kind as 
we should be. We do get prideful. We do get puffed up. We do get provoked. We fail to forgive as we should. We keep a record of wrongs. Sometimes we rejoice in iniquity rather than truth. We fail. We fail to love as we should. And so if you really read and apply this passage, you can say, yes, this is a beautiful love song. But it's also a very painful love song. It's very convicting to us because our love does not measure up. Our love does not conform to this standard. And I would say if you think you are loving this way, if you think you are doing just fine in this area, I would tell you to ask somebody close to you. Ask your spouse or a sibling or another family member or somebody who knows you well. And I think you will find that you have shortcomings. This passage is convicting for anyone who is honest because none of us loves in this way all the time. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Throughout this letter, Paul is diagnosing those problems, like a doctor examining a patient who has not just one thing wrong with him, but a multitude of illnesses. And throughout the letter, Paul is diagnosing these various illnesses, these various maladies that have afflicted the Corinthian church. But here in chapter 13, Dr. Paul comes forward with the remedy. What will cure them is love. Love is the remedy for this sick church. Love is the cure-all for a sick and ailing community. But this is where we really run into trouble. Paul talks about love, and you know what else? Our culture talks about love. Paul talks about love as the solution, love as the answer. Our culture talks about love as the answer and as the solution. But are they talking about the same thing? Paul sees love as the answer. Our culture sees love as the answer. Our culture even has various slogans about love. Slogans like, love is all you need, thanks to the Beatles, or love is love. That's one that's become really popular in recent years. But when when, when Paul talks about love, and when the world talks about love, they are talking about two very different things. When Paul talks about love under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's very different than when the world talks about love, I would say, under the inspiration of Satan. And you can see this if you look carefully at what Paul says about love and compare it to what our culture says about love. Perhaps the most obvious difference is that our culture sees love as an emotion, as a feeling. And there is no standard outside of that feeling to judge it or measure it or evaluate it. So it is an autonomous feeling. That's how our world sees love. It's this autonomous feeling and love is love. That's really what that slogan is all about. Now that slogan, love is love, I think is really rather useless. It is a tautology after all. It's like saying A is A. It doesn't really tell you anything, but that's really the whole point. It doesn't tell you anything, and that is the point, because the world's version of love can be filled with whatever content anyone feels like giving it. That's really the whole point. Uh, It's often, uh, that, that slogan, love is love, of course, is often used to defend homosexuality. And uh, we Christians will have people in the world push back against us. They will say, who are you Christians to question who I love or how I love? It is unloving for you to not approve of me loving whoever I feel like loving. That's what we're told. So in the world's view, 
They're loving, we're not. In our view, it's the other way around. But for Paul, I think you can see very clearly here, for Paul, love is not just a feeling or emotion or desire. I'm not saying it can't include those things. At its best, it does. But it's really, really clear from Paul here that love is a particular course of action. Love is a, is a particular way of living and relating to and treating other people. Love is a way of life. Love is treating others from the heart according to God's law. And so love fulfills the law of God. Love fulfills the commands of God. Without God's law to guide our love, without God's law to shape our feelings and our desires, love is blind. And the truth is, blind love is no love at all. That's another one of those sayings the world has, love is blind, simply not truth. Paul says love rejoices in the truth which is to say love has eyes and can see. Love walks in the light of truth. Love loves the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Where there is no truth, there is no love. That's what Paul says. And so what the world calls love is really hatred in disguise. The world thinks loving someone is the same as making them happy or giving them what they want or fulfilling their desires, whatever those desires might be, and that it's, that it's wrong to stand in the way of those feelings or those desires. But according to Paul's account here, that's simply wrong. Love is not merely a feeling. It's not merely a desire, nor is love just niceness or politeness, so that love means never offending anyone else. It's really important for us to understand, love is not the same as approval. You can love someone even as you disapprove of them. In fact, if you really love someone, you will have to express disapproval when you see them engaging in self-destructive sins. Sinners will not always feel loved by those who truly love them. But their feelings are not the measure of love. Feeling's not the measure of showing love, nor is feeling the measure of receiving love. Love is not merely a feeling or an emotion when it is expressed, but if you're on the receiving end, sometimes you may not feel very loved by those who really and truly do love you and who are acting in your best interest, who are showing you love. You may not feel very loved in that moment. We're actually all very familiar with this because we do it with ourselves all the time. You know how you get mad at yourself for doing something dumb and you think to yourself, why did I do that? And you kind of kick yourself for it. Well, what's going on? You disapprove of yourself and you correct yourself, but why? Why do you disapprove of yourself? Why do you correct yourself? Why are you hard on yourself? Why do you discipline yourself? You do it because you love yourself. And because you love yourself, you lovingly rebuke yourself. You lovingly speak truth to yourself. You lovingly discipline yourself. Now, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will sometimes have to correct your neighbor. I remember reading the testimony of a man who had lived the gay lifestyle for a long time, but then had come out of it. He had met some Christians, gotten to know him, uh, and gotten to know these Christians. They had loved him very well. They spoke truth to him in love, and he converted. And when he told his, his testimony, how God had worked in his life, he said this. He said, the most loving thing anyone ever did for me is tell me that I needed to repent and believe the gospel. It was hard to hear, but it was the truth I needed to hear. 
Don't confuse biblical love with worldly love, which is not love at all. Love loves what is righteous. Love loves the truth. Love rejoices in righteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. And so here's something else. Because, because love is not merely an emotion, but as C.S. Lewis says, a steady wish for the other person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. What this means is you can love people even when you don't feel like it. You can love people even when you don't particularly like them. You can even love an enemy. See, if love is just a feeling, then it makes no sense to love an enemy. How can you love someone that you don't like, somebody who is an enemy? But that's not what love is. Love is not a mere feeling. Love is a steady wish for the other person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And so, yes, you can love an enemy. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said the Bible commands us to love our neighbor and it commands us to love our enemy because they are often the same people. Well, that's exactly right. If love is doing good to another according to the law of God, you can love someone even when those feelings of affection are not there. And so I would tell you, don't waste too much time analyzing whether or not you feel love for another person. Simply act in a loving way. That's what you are called to do. Feelings will come and go even in the best of relationships. The reality is no one is going to feel loving emotions towards even their very best friend or spouse all the time. That's not possible for fallen humans living in a fallen world. You're just not going to always have those feelings. But even when the feelings are not there, you're still called upon to act in a loving way. Love is a commitment to doing what is best for the other person according to the law of God. Indeed, I would say a lot of times, feelings of love will flow from loving actions. Uh, that can happen just as much as feelings producing loving actions. Feelings of love can lead to actions of love, yes. But it's also true that actions of love can lead us into feelings of love. So don't reduce love to a feeling. Let's, uh, let's examine what the Apostle Paul says here, what Paul actually says about love, about what he calls the more excellent way. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am like a sounding brass or a clanging Symbol. That's verse 1. He's describing here the religious person, the person who has powerful religious experiences, powerful worship experiences, powerful gifts. But Paul says without love, they are worthless. Dramatic spiritual gifts and dramatic religious experiences and dramatic worship experiences mean nothing without love. Indeed, Paul says they are like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, brass and cymbals are musical instruments, and if they are part of a larger orchestra, that is to say a whole community of instruments, they can sound wonderful. But just on their own, they can sound rather irritating. So Paul here is showing us spiritual gifts belong to the community and should be used in the community for the good of the community. Divorced from the community, they become destructive. See, this is something really Paul has been saying many times in the letter of 1 Corinthians. The church is the engine that powers the Christian life. The church is the community, the family we were all made for. It's our home, as it were. 
Uh, we were made to live in community, in relationship, to love one another. The Christian life is an ecclesial life, we could say, a churchly life. A good Christian man is a churchman. Those things go together. But th this is something that American Christians often don't understand. American Christians tend to prioritize the individual over the community. We want to privatize and individualize everything. And so it's me over we in the American church so often. It's the one over the many, the individual over the communal, the part over the whole. That is not the more excellent way. The more excellent way is using your gifts in harmony with the rest of the body to serve the greater good. So your brass and your cymbals contribute to a love song we all sing and play together. That's really what Paul is driving at here. He goes on, verse 2, he says, Though I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. Set aside all the questions about these gifts like tongues and prophecy and whatnot. I've, I've dealt with those in the past. I'm not going to try to deal with all of that here. But when Paul talks about the prophet here, think of him as talking about the theologian. The person, who, the person who has the prophet's mind or the prophet's gift of understanding Scripture, understanding the mysteries of the faith, someone with great knowledge. So you've got, at the beginning of the chapter, you've got the religious person with great religious experiences. Here you've got the, the smart person, the thinking person, the theologian. Paul says you can be the best and most knowledgeable theologian in the world, but without love it is worthless. You can read or even write a big stack of theology books. You can become the Bible answer man. But without love, it is nothing. Knowledge, scholarship, expertise, they are all worthless without love. Paul goes on, verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to the poor and give my body to be burned at the stake, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. This is the practical person, the one who says, let's help the poor, let's serve our city, let's lay it all on the line and give it all away to help others. But Paul says, without love, it is worthless. And there's something really interesting here. Paul's indicating you can do, you can do good for other people. You can even do good for the poor without actually loving the poor. You can do those things in a loveless way. You can even die as a martyr without loving the truth or loving the lost. And Paul says, in that case, it is all for naught. Without love, those acts of service and sacrifice are worthless. So think about what Paul said in these first few verses, these first three verses. You can be the religious person who has grand experiences. You can be the smart person who understands theological mysteries. You can be the practical person who does poverty relief. But without love, it is all worthless. Love is what gives value to all of these things, but without love, they're worthless. Paul then goes on to show what love is really like. It's not that worship experiences or theological knowledge or concern for the poor are bad. It's just they are inadequate unless they are animated by and driven by love. So what is love? Well, Paul unpacks the qualities and attributes that define love. In the next several verses, this is what verses 4 through 7 are really about. A kind of love portrait. Love sits down in the studio with Paul, and Paul is going to paint a portrait of love for us. 
And when you really see what's happening in these verses, this is what will allow you to distinguish the genuine article from counterfeit versions of love. Real love, biblical love from worldly love, godly love from satanic love. These verses will help us make those distinctions. It's also interesting to me, in the Greek in these verses, it's much more clear than in the English, but in the Greek in verses 4 through 7, love is actually defined by a series of action. Every description we have of love here is of an action. Love is performing in some way. Love is performative. Love is as love does. Again, this reinforces what I said earlier, that love is an action. This is the more excellent way that Paul has introduced this whole section talking about. This is the more excellent way. A way in the Bible, uh, a way means a way of life, a way of acting, a way that you walk in, a way that leads somewhere. It's a way of life. This is the way of love. This is how love lives. So what does he say? Well, verse 4, he says love is long-suffering or love is patient. What does he mean by that? Well, love is not quick-tempered. This means love bears with others, with their weaknesses and their failings and their sins. And love does this because love is humble. Further, love is kind, Paul goes on to say. Uh, Love is kind, and this kindness is seen in that love serves, love gives, love encourages, love blesses. These are all manifestations of kindness. Kindness is, of course, related to words like grace and mercy. The kind person is gracious and merciful. The kind person does good to others. In fact, the kind person does good to others, often in spite of the fact that they do not deserve it. He goes on, he says, love does not envy. Envy, of course, reeks of entitlement. Envy says, I deserve this, I deserve that. Envy wants to take, so if love wants to give, envy wants to take. Envy says, if I can't have what I want, you can't have it either. Envy gives rise to all kinds of other sins. Envy is a mother sin with many offspring. And so envy will steal, envy will ruin another's reputation, envy will tear people and communities down. Envy just wants to strike a match and watch the world burn. That's envy. It's a destructive force. But rather than envying, love wants what is best for the others. Love can rejoice in good things that happen to other people. Love is generous, love shares, love overflows with goodness because it seeks the other's good. Paul continues, love does not parade itself. How much of social media is simply people parading themselves? People putting themselves out there to be seen, to be celebrated. What Paul's saying here is that love does not have to hog the spotlight. Love does not require that I always be the center of attention. Love means I don't have to always have a story that tops your story. I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room at all times. It doesn't mean, uh, it means not everyone has to laugh at my jokes. Because love does not parade itself, the loving person doesn't always have to be thanked for every little thing they do. They don't insist on being appreciated. They don't have to get credit for everything. Love is not, love does not parade itself. Love does not boast in Self. And further he goes on, he says, love is not puffed up. The reason love does not parade itself, the reason love does not show itself off is because love is not puffed up. The loving person is not full of himself. Rather, he pours himself out in order to help others. Again, love is humble. Humility and charity always go together. 
Humility and charity are twin virtues. They're always found together. So love's not puffed up. Love is humble. Verse 5, love is not rude, which is to say love is thoughtful, love is considerate of the needs and interests of others. Love will even put the interests of others ahead of its own. Love embodies the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it's interesting, the word rude here does not just mean impolite, that's how we might think of it, a rude person is somebody who doesn't have manners, it actually means shameful. That's actually what the word means. It means shameful or unseemly or inappropriate, lacking in propriety. And I would say this is where you really see how our world's definition of love does not stack up to Paul's definition of love in any kind of way. Because our culture has lost all sense of shame. We are a shameless culture. Again, this is one of the key ways you know our culture's version of love is bankrupt. We are shameless in our culture. We have no sense of shame. But scripture is clear. There are many things that are shameful that bring shame. Sexual sin brings shame. A disordered relationship between the sexes brings shame. Idolatry brings shame. Lack of propriety, especially in worship, is shameful. When there should be a show of reverence and there is not, that's rude. That's shameful, according to the scripture. Mistreating the elderly is shameful. Laziness or sloth is shameful. Drunkenness is shameful. Paul tells us here, love does nothing that is shameful. Love recognizes what is shameful, and then love avoids those things. Love is concerned with proper order and propriety. Love is concerned with showing reverence when reverence is due. Love is concerned with living a a disciplined and well-ordered life. Paul goes on, he says, love does not seek its own. Love does not demand that the whole universe bend to my will and give me my way. Think about that two-year-old who cries or pouts when he doesn't get his way, when he doesn't get what he wants. He is seeking his own. He needs to be trained in the way of love. But really, all of us need to be trained in the way of love. Love does not expect God to be a cosmic genie granting my every wish, as if God existed to meet my needs and serve my desires. The person who loves knows it would be disastrous if we always got what we desire. Sometimes the worst thing to happen to you is getting your way. Love is self-disciplined and self-controlled. Love can go without. Love is content. Love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't have to have all the time. Further, Paul goes on, love is not provoked. That is to say, love makes us thick-skinned and tender-hearted. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily triggered or offended. Love is not easily swayed or influenced by those who do wrong because love has ballast. Love has weight. Love has gravitas. Love is grounded. When Paul says love is not provoked, he says love is not going to be influenced in just any direction. Love is not driven about by the winds of the culture or the world around us. Love is not constantly trimming the sails, obsessed with pleasing people and fitting in and going with the prevailing winds of the culture. No, love is strong. Love is tough. Love has its own identity. Love is not easily broken. Love bears with others. Love can put up with a lot. 
That's what Paul means when he says love is not easily provoked. Uh, Further, love thinks no evil, or as this can also be translated, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep score. Love's not constantly keeping score of the evils done. Love keeps short accounts. Love seeks peace and reconciliation. Love is merciful. Love does not hold a grudge, and so love does not allow bitterness to grow. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is Paul's poetic way of saying that love forgives. Love is forgiving. Love is both giving and forgiving. I think Paul really gets at this in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these other virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love binds together all the other virtues, but what Paul really focuses on there is forgiving, how we forgive one another. We are never more loving. Indeed, I would say we are never more God-like than when we forgive wrongs committed against us. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not retaliate or seek revenge. Love forgives. And then verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. This is perhaps the most countercultural line about love in the entire chapter. Against the view that love is a feeling, that love is love, that I can love who and how I want, Paul says love is rooted in and rejoices in righteousness and truth. Love separated from righteousness and truth is no longer love. The world might call it love, but it is not Love. Love rejoices in righteousness. Love rejoices in truth. Now our culture will say just the opposite. Our culture will say love rooted in truth is not love because truth gets in the way of love. But Paul says without truth there is no love. Our culture says love should not confront or convict. But Paul tells us here love speaks the truth. Love has a language, and that language is truth. Love has its own love language, and that is love speaks truth. It is truth that gives love its shape. Truth is the container into which love is poured. Truth directs and guides love. Truth is the eyes of love, so it can see its way. Love speaks truth. Love acts in truth. Love loves truth. And anything else is hatred, even if the world calls it love. Anything else is hatred. And this means all those popular love songs, they really aren't love songs, they celebrate fornication. All those popular love songs that really just are sort of musical pornography, they're really not love songs at all. They're really hate songs. And movies that are supposedly love stories, but also so often celebrate sexual sin, sexual deviancy, those movies are not love stories, they're hate story. Love without truth is a lie. Love without truth is hate. Love is love really means hate is hate. It's not love at all if there is no truth. If there is no truth, if there's no righteousness, there is no When Paul tells us here that love rejoices in truth and in righteousness, what he's telling us is this. Love is not soft. Love is solid. Love is not squishy. Love has a definite shape. Love is not whatever we want it to be. Love is what God says it is. Love is tough. 
Love has sharp edges. It can cut even as it can heal. It can divide even as it unites. Love can sting even as it can save and restore. And then finally in this section, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Into verse 8, love never fails. What does it mean to say love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails? What does that mean? Uh, Paul's point here is not that love is naive. That would undo everything Paul's been saying about love. That would contradict what we just saw about love in the previous verse. Love is wise, no doubt. Love is perceptive and discerning. So for love to believe all things doesn't mean love is gullible. It might mean love puts the best possible interpretation on the words and actions of another, but it doesn't mean that love is gullible. I think the point here, when all of this is taken together, how love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, how love never fails, I think the point is this. Love is powerful. Love is power. Love is a powerful force. Love can handle whatever gets thrown at it, Love can transform any situation. Love is not fragile. Love can take a beating and come back for more. Love cannot be broken or defeated. Love will win. Love does not fail. That is to say, love is victorious. Love will persevere to the end. Love is unbreakable. Love is triumphant. Now go back to where we started. When we measure our love against the yardstick of 1 Corinthians 13, we see all of us fall short. We are Christians. We seek to love one another, and yet we don't do so as fully or as perfectly as we ought. Our love is real, but it's not all that it should be. We have room to grow. We can repent and do better. We can love more. We can fulfill this picture, this portrait of love more fully and more faithfully in our lives. But how? How do you grow in love, how can we become more mature in our love, stronger in our love? How can we become more and more loving in the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way? How can we walk further down the path of this excellent way Paul has called us to? How do we become more and more a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of people? Well, I would say this. In order to give love, you have to receive love. The only love we have to share with others, after all, is love God has already given to us. If you want to share love with others, you've got to receive God's love into yourself first. By experiencing God's love yourself, you can become a means by which others can experience God's love as well. When you have experienced God's love in your own life, then you can become the experience of God's love for others. Others can experience God's love through you. God pours his love into you so much that you overflow with God's love towards others. And some of us perhaps don't love as fully or faithfully as we should because we have closed ourselves off from receiving God's love in various ways, or perhaps in some cases people who were supposed to transmit God's love to us failed us. But whatever the case, we have not received God's love as fully as we should, and so we struggle to share. It's like we're running on empty. We just, we're not filled overflowing with love, and so we come up short when we need to love other people. But still, we have to ask, how? How can we grow in this love? How can we love in this way? Well, I think throughout this passage, but especially as you get to verse 7, it becomes clear that Paul has personified love. 
Love is not abstract. Love is personal. In fact, you could say love is a person. Paul attributes all of these personal actions to love. Love rejoices, love trusts, love hopes, love perseveres. Love is a power that acts in all of these ways. As he is describing love, it almost seems as if love has taken on a life of its own. In fact, I think that's what Paul is describing. It seems that love is a person, as Paul describes love here. But we already know that that person is not me, and it's not you. You and I are not the full personal embodiment of this love. So who is this person? Who embodies and personifies this love? Well, I'll tell you his name in just a minute, because love does have a name, but let me tell you his story first. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his followers, saying, this is my body, given for you. And then he took a cup of wine and again blessed it and gave it to his followers, saying, this is my blood shed for you. This is my blood poured out for you. His body torn, his blood shed, this is the very embodiment of love. Love has a name, and love's name is Jesus. Love has a story, and that story is the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus. His death for our sins and his resurrection, his triumphant victory over death. This song about love, this love song in 1 Corinthians 13 is a song about Jesus. It's not love that's being praised here. It's not love that's being described. It is Jesus. Jesus who is the very personal embodiment of love. Love has a name, Jesus. And love has a story, the gospel. And we only come to love Jesus because he first loved us. And we only come to love each other because he first loved us. All the love in the world has its source in Jesus. And indeed, we can take that one step back and say all the love in the world has its source in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and Spirit. All the love in the world flows out from the triune God through Jesus. That's the only source of love there is. Jesus is love incarnate. He is God's love for us. He is God's love embodied in our flesh and given to us, dwelling in us. This love is a person and that person is Jesus. And This love is seen in his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave to rescue us. He has loved us quite literally to hell and back. And his love will take us into heavenly glory. His love saves us from wrath and from Satan. His love redeems us from slavery to sin and frees us from death. The law commands us to love others perfectly. The gospel tells us we have been perfectly loved. And if you try to do the law without the gospel, you will fail. Because the only place you can find love to give to other people is if you find love and receive love in Jesus. The law says love others perfectly. The gospel says you have been loved perfectly. And it's that gospel that enables you to keep the law. And so let's read this chapter again. But now instead of putting yourself into the passage for love, let's plug in Jesus and see what happens. Jesus 
suffers long. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. And I'd say that way of reading this song, that way of reading this chapter works. And because Jesus has loved us in this way, not only do we know God and God's love, and not only do we love God in whom we have eternal life, but now we can begin to love one another. We can begin to love one another because he has first loved us. And because he has given us love, we have love to share. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.